Well, to begin with my journey, I was born in the middle of a gas shortage in the 1970s in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, three weeks after my father graduated from Trinity School for Ministry, the third of what would be four children to my young parents. And don't worry, I won't take this long with every little detail of my life. But I feel the need to begin at the beginning because I was born into a family that was a Christian family, um, that was also a family involved in ministry. And in addition to that, you can say those things and say a family involved in ministry and a family that is Christian, and yet that doesn't necessarily assume, sadly, that it's a family where there is love unconditionally offered to its children. But praise God, that is my family. Um, I have been so blessed to be raised in a family where um, my parents themselves palpably knew the grace of God, not only in their own conversions as teenagers, but also in their continuing life as Christians. And they lived that out very palpably and tangibly in the way that they raised us. And for that, I am I'm grateful. So I just want to encourage those Christian parents out there, in fact, probably all of you, as you um, take on the important job of being a mother and a father to a child, showing them the unconditional love of God. Um, so praise God, I am in, in, most, in many ways a product of that kind of an environment. And yet... Um, I would be lying to say that I was always a Christian. Even growing up in a Christian family, there was a time when I most certainly did not believe in God. I I was a little atheist um, up until about age six. (laughs) Oh, definitely. And I I know this not because I have a great memory, but because um, I just know that things changed around age six. So I can figure that in those early early years, I only remember, you know, a few incidents. I'm not one of those people that remembers, you know, things from pre-verbal days. That's not me, which is probably a good thing. There's a reason we only learn language at a certain point. Um, But I was nicknamed by one of the parishioners in the first church where my father served in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. I was nicknamed Old Sobersides because I was really serious. Of the four of us children, I was the quiet one, which when you get to know me in this setting, you'll think, she's the quiet one? Okay. Um, But my family is very loud and joyful. My siblings are all brilliant, I think, and I'm sure most other people think so, too. My younger sister in particular is probably the best comedian I know of. She is um, she's a barrel of laughs and always fun to be around. And so in that environment, I was a little thinker. The wheels were always turning. And so I got that nickname, Old Soberside, because I was taking it all in, and I was processing it, and I was thinking about it. And so in that, with, given that aspect of my character, I um, thought a lot about my existence. So I guess I was also a little existentialist atheist existentialist and I would lie awake at in bed at night and I would think about my situation how wonderful it was I knew I knew I was lucky to be in a joyful Christian loving family 
I knew that my friends might not have the same circumstance, that they might um, be even in a less loving situation or even in a situation where they experienced economic hardship or, um, or where there was a lot of criticism lobbed at them or things like that. I was aware. I picked up on things like that, even from my little preschool friends. So I knew that there was something different about the situation I'd been put in, and I would think about it, and I would think, well, what if I had been in another situation? What if my lot had been different? And I would be terrified because I believed in the randomness of the universe, that little atheist I believed that it was just completely random, and it scared the heck out of me. I would even revisit that terror. I would kind of invoke what I call that cosmic freakout, that panic of what if there is no order to the universe? And I really believed there wasn't any. And then I, the reason why I know that this changed was because I would go back, I'd try, like someone trying to go to a horror movie just to um, get that fright, on purpose, enjoying that experience of terror, I would try to go back there at a certain point, and I couldn't go there. And upon, you know, upon reflection, when I look back at those years, I know that the reason why I couldn't go there was because I began to believe in a sovereign, loving God. So I, there was a change that occurred even early on there. So I did believe in a sovereign, loving God, and then for several years after that, I knew about Jesus, and I went to Sunday school, and I was that good little minister's daughter. You know, I don't know if you know this, but people tend to project on the clergy the things that they want to see, um, the, the, and unfortunately, it happens not just with the actual ministers, but with the whole family, and I, I sensed that even as a young girl. I sensed that people thought I was perfect, and I knew I was not. I knew that my outward compliance masked an inward defiance. I knew that my motivations were not pure, that I would even do obedient things, good things, because I wanted attention, because I wanted to preserve that image, because I wanted my parents to like me. All of those selfish reasons were right there in my little heart, and I knew that. Um, so all these years, you know, I would hear things like, give your life to Jesus, walk down the aisle, and you take the initiative and commit. Um, and I am so thankful that that did not happen in those years, because I, looking back again, I sensed that that was the desire and the will of other people for my life. And if I had complied there, then I might not have known that my salvation rested outside of myself. I might have had the, the illusion that my grasp on Jesus Christ was um, crucial to maintaining my, my salvation. But instead, what actually happened was that it was a complete accident. I was reading my homework. I was doing my Sunday school homework. Good little girl. I was doing my Sunday school homework, and it was there um, that the gospel was presented to me from Scripture. There I was alone, and in the words of Wesley, my heart was strangely warmed. And it, was, it became so clear to me that my own sinfulness um, was a massive problem, and that it was a problem that I couldn't solve, 
that needed to be solved only by God, that could only be solved by God. And so I knew that the cross was for me, that Jesus Christ had died for me to save me from my sins. Um, And so in that moment, I'm so grateful that I was overwhelmed. It was so clearly the Holy Spirit taking me, claiming me. Um, And I was gripped by faith from that moment on in Jesus. I like to think of the cross. I'm very image-driven as an artist, as an actor. And I like to think of it in terms of photography. I don't know a lot about photography, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. But as I understand it in old photography, you know the way it used to be before we had digital cameras, that there would be, um, there's something about the quality of light flashing on a plate or um, that's treated with chemicals or on a special kind of light-sensitive paper. And the flash of light reacts with the chemicals on the paper to create this negative image, right? Where light is dark and dark is light. And from there, that image can then be used to reproduce other images. Prints, right? Is this right? I have this sense, as I look at that moment of my conversion at age 13, that it was as though um, the, the, the cross itself had been by the revelation of God, by, through the Holy Spirit, from outside of me, um, it had been flashed upon the photographic paper of my heart. That um, it had nothing to do with me, but rather that I was then, from that moment on, indelibly marked by the sign of the cross. So I praise God for that moment. So then entered my young teenage years, and I will admit, after becoming a Christian, I became a self-righteous Pharisee. (laughs) I was involved in youth group. I was involved in Bible studies. I was involved in Curcio for Youth, which is called Happening, or was called Happening where I lived. And I was a leader in everything, of course, minister's daughter, right? And so that, um, that projection of the image of the good little minister's daughter persisted. And it's really bad when you start to read your own press. But you could essentially say I was reading my own press for a little while there. I remember especially we moved from Pittsburgh to Boston area when I was 15. And I went from being a leader in the happening program in Pittsburgh to being a leader in the happening program in Boston. And I see my pride in retrospect, not then, sadly, and my self-righteousness rearing its ugly head in the way that I related to other people. They were not good enough. They were not really following scripture. They were not really obeying the words of Jesus. They were not really serious about their faith. And the underlying message was that I was. I put myself in the seat of the judge the seat that belongs only to Jesus Christ. Woe to me. Um, But the Lord did not leave me there. The Lord, thankfully, also, um, uh, and not through any work of my own, again, but rather through the trials and sufferings of my life, which you can look at me and you can say, oh, you young thing, or whatever, it's all relative, youth. Um, You could say, What have you known of suffering? Um, But when I was 17, my very best friend in all the world attempted suicide. 
And my pride, the thought that I could help this person, that I could make them better, that I could love them into joy, that um, through me they might know the love of God for them and be healed, all of these ambitious hopes were so clearly dashed. I was kicked out of that judgment seat. I was kicked out of the role of being in control of my life, being in control of the lives of those I loved. It was very difficult for me. And I found that I couldn't do anything. I was totally helpless. I could resort only to prayer. And by letting go of the, um, the person that I loved so dearly, by turning her over to the Lord's hands, trusting that he alone would bring her to health, to wholeness, to a sense of joy in life. Um, so that, you know, it's amazing how suffering and trial can rub off some of our rough edges. I would not have chosen that in the slightest. And I do praise God. This person is still in my life and is healthy and whole and joyful to this day. But that's the grace of God. That's God's power at work in her life. And it has nothing to do with me, right? But that was just the first. So that was when I was about 17. And, you know, as I was growing into young adulthood, I was looking at, um, that was just the first of a series of circumstances where people around me that I loved were in trouble or experiencing hardship. um, And I took it very personally. And yet again, I could do nothing about it except turn to God in prayer and relinquishing the outcome of their situation and of my own as well. When I started to look at colleges, my mother, I, I, I love my mother, and she's not a pushy person at all. She's, she's one of the most gracious people I know. But I do think she realized that I was her best candidate for a Christian college of her four children. <laughs> and so she, you know, very gently in her way, invited me to come to a, to a Christian college um, fair in, outside of Boston. And so I went kind of reluctantly just to, you know, make her happy. And um, I, but then I just, I just decided I'll apply to the only one that's going to be a good academic school in my mind, in my arrogance. And I'll apply everywhere else where I want to go. So I applied to great schools, Ivy League, Little Ivy Leagues, um, and then that Christian college was my safety. Um, I had relegated it only to that spot. And um, again, God in his wisdom did not allow me to get into any of the schools that I really wanted to go to. (laughs) Isn't it funny how those open doors and the closed doors work so well in our lives for um, putting things in perspective? So I had only two choices, and I assumed that Wheaton would be my last choice once again. Um, And I visited Wheaton then just to, again, say, okay, I've crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. I'm definitely not supposed to go here. I already know this, but we'll just go and visit it. And when I visited, it was so clear to me that the Lord was actually calling me there despite myself. And the reason for that was that in the acceptance letter, and I'd received a lot of those letters um, that were not acceptance letters. So, you know, of course, in the um, we're so sorry, but you didn't get in letter, 
um, it would, you know, they would pump up your ego. It was our biggest class of applicants, and the caliber of the applicants this year has exceeded previous years. You know, it was so hard to make up our minds, but you're not in. <laughs> yeah, or if it was an acceptance letter, that one other acceptance letter said, uh, it was our hardest year, and we had a, a, a high caliber of applicants this year, and congratulations, you made it. It was all about the ego in both kinds of letters. Um, and Wheaton College's letter was distinctly different. The letter said um, it was a tough year, and there were many people who wanted to go here. So pray for them. Pray for the ones who didn't get in but really wanted to go. And that difference of approach was what caught my attention. And so I started to incline some more. And again, in my arrogance, I thought that I was called to go there probably because I knew that um, those words of Jesus to his disciples in John 6, and then the words of Peter in response. In John 6, disciples are falling, falling away after the feeding of the 5,000 because of the difficult words of Jesus. Jesus turns to the 12 and says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else could I go? There was nowhere else for me but the Christian life. And I knew that at 18, and yet I faced it, I must admit, with a sense of dread, because all my life I felt as though I'd experienced the judgment of other Christians. As a minister's daughter, I felt like, oh, if I go to a Christian college, I'm just going to be judged all over again all the time, and I'm going to really have to learn to like other Christians if I'm going to walk this walk for the rest of my life. It's kind of, again, arrogant and pessimistic. Um, but, you know, isn't it funny when you think you're doing something for a certain reason, you find out later that that was really not why God had you do it? So I found out much later on that that was actually not really the rationale, I think, in God's mind for bringing me to Wheaton College. It was actually to um, instill in me three passions. And I think in my written biography on the website I said two passions, but I've added a third. That's how it goes. Um, the three passions that I discovered in college were um, a passion, first of all, for the community of the church. Oddly enough, given my reservations about going to a Christian college and Christians in general. Secondly, a passion for theater and for art in general. And by art, I mean broadly all art forms. Um, anything that has a component of beauty and truth to it. And thirdly, a passion for the word of God. All of these three passions had been sort of latently there in my life, but they came to bright and vivid light when I was in college. And there, when I was in college, I discovered um, the theater community itself, which was a community of 40 hand-selected students. You had to audition to even be able to audition for the shows. And I came on the scene not really caring about theater at all, um, but I was just looking for a place where I could find friends as a freshman in college. And when I, was, um, when I was at the theater, I just sensed that the people there were markedly different from the rest of the campus. 
that there was a graciousness in their demeanor, that I was safe as I am. I was able to be who I was in the midst of a loving community. And that community was a community of Christians, the church itself, right? Because we were all believers in Jesus. And there we were working together to create something beautiful and true. And I loved that. I loved being a leader in that group. I loved caring for people in that group. I loved dealing with our struggles and strife together. Um, So in some ways, that's when I fell in love with the people of God. The second thing with theater, of course, the art form itself. Because there in theater, um, in acting especially, I found that um, there's this moment of grace where as an actor, you're standing up in front of other people. And most people think that acting is, in, is lying, essentially. I mean, I've had people say to me that, and yeah, I know. I've had good, well-meaning Christians say, well, how could you ever be an actor? Um, because acting involves lying. And I, I never understood that statement because the way I was taught to act was that true and good acting actually involves um, telling the truth. And so that essentially the artist, the actor, standing in front of an audience is um, telling the truth about themselves even if the words are different. So, for example, and this is just one acting technique, is that um, the actor will use the words of the script and the quality of the event itself. What is the event itself? A very easy one, for example, would be grief, the loss of someone or something that one cherished. And in that moment of portraying grief or loss, um, you as the actor are, are um, not focusing necessarily on the actual loss of the character in the play or in the film. You are instead focusing on a very real loss of your own. And that's what then gives the, the, the right quality to the acting itself. You're not lying. You're actually telling the truth about yourself with some measure of security in that it's a character. The same is true of writers and directors. They're really telling the truths about themselves with some measure of security. All of the names of the people in the story have been changed. You ever hear that? They're telling the truth about themselves. And I loved that. I loved that, that honesty. Um, in that in that community. The other thing I ended up loving when I was in college was the actual Word of God. I'd already been exposed to it through Bible studies, through discipleship groups, through happening. Um, but when I went to college there, I finally got the chance to study Scripture in depth, to do in-depth exegesis of in, with the Word of God. And at a Christian college, I was, well, first of all, when I'd moved to Boston at age 15, I had this huge learning curve. I went from an okay high school to a really hard high school, and I was given a run for my money academically. So when I got to college, I was actually able to spend all my time at the theater without any academic ramifications. I was able to be there and not do my homework and be fine, which is terrible. But um, I thought it was just plain wrong that I could get away with that with Bible classes. And I just thought, no, really, make me work for it. Make me work to really know Scripture. And so I, I took one general ed requirement for Old Testament. And then when it came to New Testament, I said, enough of that. I'm going to get my money's worth. And I went and badgered this professor. And 
I argued my way into an upper-level Bible course because I wanted meat. I wanted something. I wanted to know more about Scripture. I wanted to be made to um, really dig deeply in Scripture. And he um, let me in with probably a smile on his face, knowing that I would be in way over my head. And I was. I didn't know Greek. Everybody else knew Greek. I, I was way in over my head, but I loved it. I loved it. And as I was working on the final paper for that class in the library, procrastinating in my human weakness, standing before two stacks of books and actually praying, okay, Lord, which paper am I going to write? Because it was the end of the day and I had to take home the books to be able to start to write the paper. And I I just, in that moment, in studying scripture, I sensed the Holy Spirit with me powerfully. And I don't know if other people or if you... For you, if you've taught a class or led a small group, when you're studying and preparing, there's kind of a dividend that you might get. And I got hooked on that dividend. I loved that moment of studying scripture and having it transform my own life. And as I was worshiping in my Episcopal church that Sunday while I was writing the paper, I just sensed that this was for me that scripture was for me, that studying scripture was something I wanted to do for the rest of my life in that kind of depth, but also that it wasn't for me. It wasn't just for me. I couldn't live in an academic ivory tower, which is something that as an idealist I'd love to do, you know, just ensconce me with some books and let me, you know, work away for years. Um, But it was so clear that the Lord was calling me away from that kind of lifestyle and into the church. Um, And I... I sensed that I was called, for the first time, I sensed that I was called to ordained ministry, that the ministry of word um, went hand in hand with the church's ministry and the ministry of sacrament. Um, And so I just, I literally, I saw myself vested as a priest behind the altar rail in the church where I was worshiping that Sunday. Now, I think you should test everything, you know, when you have these moments of, wow, I think that's the Lord speaking to me. And I had to test this one, and when I tested it, I knew that it was something I never would have come up with on my own. There was no way I wanted to be a priest. That's what my dad did. That's not what I was going to do. I wanted a different kind of life. And so after college, I naturally moved to New York City nine days after 9-11 and started to get to work on an acting career. I took classes, and I auditioned. And I studied acting, and I worked at it, and I lived the dream. And I looked back in my journal years later, and I saw that my prayer at that time had been, yeah, yeah, I know about this call to ministry, but Lord, if you want me to do that, you're going to have to change the taste of acting in my mouth. Because it tastes good. I like it. I like the acting. I like the, um, the art form. And the Lord answered that prayer because the dream soured. And it soured relatively quickly after only two years. I began to sense that I I would not succeed in this environment and that it was not for me. In fact, I could sell just about anything. I could sell a toothpaste I thought was really great. I could sell, you know, a character in a checkoff play. I could sell anything except myself. And in the world of acting, the management piece means that you have to network and work and promote your own self. You're the product that you're promoting. And I just, I couldn't do that. 
Um, and I also wanted to be a part of something that would make a difference in people's lives in a different way. And so I started to apply to seminaries. I started to look. I started to look and say, okay, what next? Um, and I literally, you know, again, open doors are very helpful in discerning the Lord's will, I find. It's very tangible. I didn't get into those schools. I guess it's not the Lord's will for me to go there. And with acting and ministry, I thought I'd give out one more fleece as I was leaving New York City. And so I auditioned for one grad school, an MFA in acting at a school that was specifically Shakespeare-based, which was my love. I love Shakespeare. And, I, um, and so I said, well, if I can't get in there, then none of it's worth it. And I really, I really am probably supposed to go to seminary then. Um, but I thought I'd give it one last try. So I went out to San Diego, and I had an audition. And I was, I'm so grateful that the audition went well, in my estimation. Went well, and I didn't get in also, clearly. I ended up going to seminary. I knew that that was what the Lord was asking me to do. Um, but as I was there, desiring to serve the Lord, desiring to um, be used by God, to minister to other people and to bless other people, I essentially picked out a monologue, a Shakespeare monologue, that I thought would be um, was something I was just drawn to. And the monologue is from The Merchant of Venice. I chose to play and portray Portia in that last audition. And the reason why I chose to, I don't, I don't think I knew at the time why I was choosing to play Portia. And I don't know if you know The Merchant of Venice, but by Act 3 in The Merchant of Venice, Portia is an orphaned heiress. Her beloved father has set her up well in life, and she has a lot of money. She's also considered by others to be a good catch in other ways as well. Um, And so she has these suitors that come from around the world to seek her hand in marriage. And her father had set up these three caskets of um, what uh, treasure, essentially. And the, the man who guessed the right casket would win the hand of his daughter, Portia. This is what her father did um, while he was still alive. And then after his death, he knew he could trust whatever man picked the right casket. So one casket was made of gold, one of silver, and one of plain wood. And there are two suitors that come forward in the earlier acts of the play. And they both are awful. They're pompous and annoying, and she doesn't like either one of them. And thankfully, they both pick the wrong caskets. One picks the silver casket, and one picks the gold. And she breathes a sigh of relief. And then by Act 3, a catch comes along, a man that she actually enjoys and likes and thinks this could be it. But now she's afraid that he, too, will pick the wrong casket. And so when he picks the right casket, she is overjoyed, and she responds, in a monologue. And that was the monologue that I chose to do for this Shakespeare audition, for this last time, this one last audition. And the monologue, as I just said, good acting reveals the truth about a person. And so to give this monologue truly, I actually gave it as a prayer because the words of Portia were the words and actually the sentiment that I was saying to God. I was saying to God, here I am, I'm not much, and what I have isn't that great. I wish it was better now that I'm giving it to you. 
but here I am. Take me and be my Lord. Essentially, I love you and I'll do what you ask of me. So that's what I was saying in that last audition. Now I'm going to lose it. I won't. Don't worry. Don't worry, Frank. So here's that monologue from the Merchant of Venice. Here's Portia. You see me, Lord Bassanio, where I stand, such as I am, though for myself alone I would not be ambitious in my wish to wish myself much better. Yet for you I would be trebled twenty times myself, a thousand times more fair, ten thousand times more rich. That only to stand high in your account. I might in virtues, livings, beauties, friends, exceed accounts. But alas, the full sum of me is sum of something, which to term in gross is an unlessened girl, unschooled, unpracticed, happy in this. She is not yet so old, but she may learn. Happier than this, she is not bred so dull, but she can learn. And happiest of all is that her gentle spirit commits itself to yours to be directed as from her lord, her governor, her king, myself and what is mine to you and yours is now converted. But now I was the lord of this fair mansion, ruler of my servants, queen or myself, and even now, but now, This house, these servants, and this same myself are yours, my lords. You don't have to clap. That's what... (laughs) That's what I was saying to God. And... And he answered that desire of mine to be used by him. And so I embarked on the long process of going through seminary and getting ordained. Um, And so here I am several years later. Thank you. <laughs> Deborah, I know um, your first church was outside of uh, TEC, and mm-hmm. now you've come back in. Can you go into that a little bit? Sure. Well, I, um, I graduated from seminary in 2008, and I um, was looking and looking and looking for a place to go. Um, essentially, when I was in seminary, I was in the Diocese of Pittsburgh. And as you may know, the Diocese of Pittsburgh as a whole left the Episcopal Church, and it was a very difficult divide. And I felt as though I was called to stay with the majority of the diocese in leaving. And my main rationale for that was that um, I sensed that in an environment where women clergy are less accepted, um, I, I in some ways had been set up by the Lord to um, be more comfortable in that setting just because of the massive support that I have from my father, from my brother, from my whole family. A lot of women clergy don't have that kind of support in their personal life. So I knew that if I had that support, I wanted to use it as best as possible. So that was the rationale for the call into the ACNA personally, 
in addition to theological concerns. And yet, um, both churches are used by God. And I knew that um, returning to the church of my birth would not be um, would be something I could do because of um, because I don't think the Lord is done yet with the Episcopal Church. I think there's the Advent is a wonderful example of um, of a beautiful witness, a light in um, in in places where the gospel isn't always proclaimed. And so I was so overjoyed to get to be a part of that. And in contemplating the call, it was a draw um, to be a part of that witness. When are you taking auditions? I'm done. Didn't you hear that? For us. I'm done. The next play. Oh, yeah. Everybody wants to be in a For show. Rally day. Yeah, right. Well, I hope you can see why I hired her. So. Oh. I'm going to go move that stuff. That's perfect.